to Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. As God was creating the world on the sixth day, We read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heaven, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus far our Old Testament lesson. Please turn now to Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning with verse 22. God speaking through the apostle to his church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members. Of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. God, our Father, we ask for wisdom and insight today that your spirit would open our eyes to Jesus, open our ears, that we would hear you speaking to our hearts, And that in so doing, you would change our lives and make us more like Christ. May the words of my mouth, may the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Our rock and our redeemer, we come in Jesus' name, amen. Marriage is a mystery. It's a mystery. That's what the Bible says. 
And it's something that many of you that are married would likely immediately agree with, thinking I've been married X number of years and I still quite haven't figured this marriage thing out. Bringing two very different people together, different not only in family of origin, maybe different in culture, but also different in sex, with all the attendant differences, both physical and emotional, and expect them to somehow form a unity, to become one, uh, that's pretty amazing. That's no small challenge. How can that happen? Now, when the Bible uses the word mystery, however, it generally is not referring to an unknown problem that we need to figure out. We just need to find that right book that tells us the right number of steps to figure out our marriages and everything will be happy and holy and no more problems, no more confusion, no more misunderstanding. Now, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it's referring to something that cannot be known by humans on their own, but must be revealed by God and generally has been revealed. That's the reference to the mystery of what was once hidden which has now been made known. And the mystery of which our text speaks today is that marriage is not a social construct that we build ourselves, custom fit, according to our own desires and thoughts, however we will, But rather, it is a God-designed relationship through which God's gracious love for sinners is constantly being revealed and reinforced. For this reason, marriage matters to the church, and the church matters to marriage, or at least it ought to. You see, when viewed in isolation from the church and from the Lord who designed marriage, marriage indeed becomes an unknown problem that seems beyond solving, and sometimes it can even become an oppressive problem, especially in this hyper-individualized world in which we live where we focus on my individual personal rights as of supreme importance. And therefore the question is, why am I not getting more out of this marriage? That's how the world looks at it. The word submit that occurs a few times in our text is not a very popular word today. Why should I submit to someone else who dares claim authority over me in my life? I'm free to do what I will. And when you take that word submit and remove it from its Christ-connected 
responsibility-focused biblical context, that word submit can be abused. There is no doubt about that. As we look at this text, it's important to recognize not only what words are present in this passage, but what words are absent from the passage. We do find the word submit, but the word rule and the word authority are not to be found here. You would think they might. If someone is submitting, someone must be ruling. The word submit itself means to arrange under, to order under. Who's doing the ordering? Under whom is it? But there's no mention of authority, no mention of rule. We find the word obligation. Which you may not see because in verse 28, it's normally translated should or ought. But it is the word obligated, the verb. We are obligated. The husband is obligated. We find that word obligation. But we don't find... We don't find the word responsibility, even though an obligation entails a responsibility. But what we do find is the word love. Three times the word love is enjoined upon husbands. What we see from this text is that our marriages do not belong to us alone. They belong to God. They were designed by him to point to the gospel, to Christ's love for his church. And they are an important part of our testimony as a church to the truth of the gospel. We claim that Christ has come to forgive sinners. And the church is filled with sinners. And we say he really does forgive and change our lives. And our marriages is a prime place where that should be revealed. Because our marriages are designed to reflect Christ's love for the church. We should pursue marriages that indeed do give glory to Christ. Our marriages matter to the church. Our marriages matter to the church. That is probably one of the most overlooked aspects of this text. 
People say, oh, you want to know about marriage? Go to Ephesians 5, 22 to 23. Tells wives to submit, husbands to love. Where's the church? Well, the church is made very clear, even though you don't see it, immediately in verse 22, because, in fact, in the Greek, the word submit does not exist in verse 22. It actually exists in verse 21. It literally says in verse 22, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. But it did say in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, it's not a period. These little helpful paragraph titles sometimes aren't so helpful because the admonition to husbands and wives flows out of Paul's instruction to the church to be the church. Remember the first half of Ephesians is about what is the church and the second half is about being the church, how to be the church. And he has just said in verse 15 that we're to walk as wise, not as unwise, and that we're to Not get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And then the way that we know we're filled with the Spirit is we address one another in psalms and hymns. We sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts. We are giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is all about the church and how the church is to be. And so bracketing the very beginning of this is the church. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and now focusing on three of the most basic relationships that exist within the family of the church, which is husbands, wives, parents, children, master, slaves. But this is about the church. How is the church to be? in our relationship to one another. So this discussion of marriage flows out of a discussion of how the church is to live before the watching world as part of its testimony to the truth of Christ. But further, this discussion of marriage ends by focusing on the church. In verse 32 Paul concludes, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, he immediately adds, to make sure we don't lose the application, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. But he says, I'm talking about the church here. I'm talking about the church here. Even as he's been talking about marriage, at the same time, he has been discussing Christ and the church. That's the mystery. That the very structure and design of marriage is predicated on Christ's love 
for the church in the gospel. And so when we look at the marriages in our church, we ought to see something of Christ and the gospel. Our marriages matter to the church. When I was in seminary, um, there was a very famous lawsuit brought against the church in Oklahoma, which had disciplined one spouse for committing adultery against the other spouse. Not with the other spouse, but against them. And the spouse that was being disciplined by the church sued in court, claiming that the church had no business in their personal affairs and therefore had no right to discipline them. But that betrays a misunderstanding. You see, what what Paul is saying here is that marriage is about the church. It's built on the design of Christ's love for the church. And that is spelled out when we look and see how marriage matters to the wife. And that's where this word that is carried forward from verse 21 comes, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Then he goes on to explain, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, in our day, there's a great reaction against that word submit. And especially because he concludes that wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And all all the objections arise. Well, what if he's abusive? What if he's cheating? What if this? What if that? And those are questions that deserve an answer. But I would urge you that we need to see, we need to let this play out. We need to hear what Paul is saying. In this entire passage, he is not talking about our rights in marriage. The word right never appears. The word obligation does, but not the word right. What we are given is our responsibilities. There is an order that God created when he created marriage. Adam is the head. He was created first. First Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, make that a little bit more explicit than Paul does here. But there is an order that is given. And so he says, wives submit as to the Lord. Now that's an important statement because it answers some of those questions. What if this and what if that? If the husband asks the wife to do something sinful or contrary to God, then 
That's not how she would respond to the Lord, and so she ought not to respond in that way. But while we're looking for all of the little bitty objections, where we usually most deal with trouble is just in ordinary day-to-day living and having an attitude of contrariness. And he said the design of marriage is built on Christ and the church, and the church needs to respond to Christ in everything. Christ has done it all for us. We can't suddenly rewrite the rules of our salvation. Christ is the Savior. And that's another clue. You see, because when it says that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior, at that point it's making a distinction between the role of a husband, who is not the Savior of his wife, and the role of Christ with respect to the church. But nonetheless, in terms of the ordinary way of dealing with one another, it is the responsibility of the wife that he is saying within the context of the church to submit to her husband. He says, as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. It's a general statement of the way things ought to look like. And the reason it looks like that is because the church responds and submits to Christ. He is the Savior. All we can do is respond to what he has done. We have to submit to salvation as he has provided it. We can't say, ah, but Jesus, you should have let me help here. I could have done a little bit more for you. Well, the point is, no, we can't have done a little bit more or a little bit better or been a little bit gooder. We'll never be good enough. And so in marriage, the wife has the opportunity to show the trust of the Christian in Christ. By her submission to her husband. So marriage matters to the wife because it's an opportunity to show how we are to respond to Christ in the gospel. We embrace him as he comes to us. We follow him. But marriage also matters to the husband. And let it be noted that the Apostle Paul spends three times as much attention on what the responsibilities, remember what's being focused on here is responsibilities, not rights, on the responsibilities of the husband than the responsibility of the wives. It was about 40 or 40 to 44 words for addressed to the wives. It's almost 120 words addressed to the husbands. There's three verses that speak to the wives. There are nine verses that speak to the husbands. And what does he say to the husbands? Well, if he said, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord... 
he might have said, husbands, rule your wives well, as God rules his people. But the word rule doesn't come. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, in the ancient world, they really did not talk much about husbands loving their wives. And when they did, they generally used one of two Greek words, either the word eros, from which we get erotic, speaking of sexual desire, or phileo, from which we get Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, that kind of familial love, but it didn't really even then use the word love with respect to husbands and their wives. Here, the word is not either of those words. It is the word agape, agapao, which is the verb, which means a selfless love. And three times it's repeated. In case the men don't get it the first time, in verse 25, when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's repeated in verse 28, in the same way as Christ, husbands should, are obligated to love their wives as their own bodies. He loves his wife, loves himself. And then in verse 33, in case they still haven't gotten it, he says, therefore, let each one of you. And it's really very difficult Greek at this point because he's piling up. Let each one of you, that is you. There's all these words focusing on you to make sure you get it. You husbands love your wives. Love your wives. And the Christ, of course, is the example given here. And how did he love his wife? He gave himself up for her. This is referring to the cross, when you give yourself over. But this word is commonly used of Christ giving himself up for his people at the cross. Now, it tells us why he did this. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, that he might set her apart, that he might make her holy. And how does he make his people holy? Well, he cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So Christ is cleansing by the washing of water with the word. Some think maybe this is a reference to baptism. Others are just saying it's washing is the way you are cleansed. And actually, some think it's referring to the bridal bath that a wife would give herself when she gets ready to be married and and so she wants to be clean. It's an interesting thing when you think about it. When we uh, went to look at the place where uh, Mark's wedding is going to take place, it's this fancy mansion and there's these 
half of the second story is uh, given over for where the men are to get ready, and the other half is for the women. And the bathrooms are about three times the size on the women's side because the women are want the bride wants to make herself beautiful for her husband. That's what happens at weddings. But notice who's making her beautiful. It's Christ who makes his bride beautiful. And we need to think about that. Maybe if your wife isn't quite as beautiful as you think she should be, maybe it's because you haven't been doing much to help her to be beautiful. That's what Paul seems to be suggesting here. You see, Christ is the one who cleanses the church with his word, with the gospel, with the promise of hope and salvation, of real cleansing, so that he might present his church, his bride, to himself in splendor. That passage in Revelation 21 where where John looked and coming out of heaven like a bride adorned. Is a new Jerusalem. He wants his bride to be holy and without blame in every way. And in thinking of the marriage, the fact that he's later going to quote in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's already thinking of this in verse 28 when he says a husband should love his wife as he loves his own body. Now there's a practical side to it. We do tend to baby our bodies. It's funny how we, we're not always sympathetic to our spouse's aches and pains, but boy, when we are hurting, we want all that attention and all that care. We want to take care of whatever it is that's bothering us. He says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cares for it. But he's also talking about Christ, nourishing and caring for the church. He not only paid the the price for the bride, but he himself made sure that the bride would be cleaned and perfected and nourished and cared. And why does Christ do this for the church? Because we are members of his body. We are united to him by faith. There is this union between Christ and his church. That's how we are saved. And that's the mystery. That marriage isn't really just about me and my wife or you and your spouse. It's about Christ. It's about Christ and his love for his bride. It's sort of this ongoing living laboratory of the gospel. Is it true or isn't it? Is grace being revealed? Are sinners being embraced and transformed? There's plenty of sin on all sides of the aisle, at least at this level, not at Christ and his bride. 
But marriage is a picture of the gospel. And it's one that we get to show again and again and again as we fail one another and as we forgive one another. See, it does, Paul doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands when they're being nice. There's no gospel in that. It's when it's love is undeserved. And in a real sense, submission is love because you're going under some, you're ordering yourself under a husband who can be a horrible sinner. Now, there are other places where we see when it's sinful that that's not the kind of submission in view here. But this is not the place to be making all the excuses. The the point here is to get the picture. This is about Christ and his church. This is about the gospel. This is about what God has done for you. And what it means to live out and be the church. As he says in Ephesians 4.1, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We've been called to be Christ's own. How are we to live that out? Part of it is in our marriages when we show forth the gospel. By husbands laying down their lives for their wives. Christ laid down his life for the church. Now, in some instances it may require that you put your life down for your wife. If she's being attacked and you intervene. But a lot of the time, it's just laying aside your petty selfishness in order to care for this one, to demonstrate Christ's love. Marriages matter to the husband because we have the opportunity to show forth the love of Christ to the world. Marriages matter to wives because you have the opportunity to to show what it means to really trust Christ, regardless of the circumstances. Marriages matter to the church because to talk about marriage is to talk about the church because God, by his wise design, even before the fall, designed marriage that it would be a reflection of of God's grace after the fall. Isn't our God great? And you see, the amazing thing is that we don't have to walk through life on our own trying to figure this out. For those of us who are married, we we have that living laboratory right in front of us to put it to work, to make sure we understand what grace is about, what forgiveness is about, what humbling ourselves is about. What laying our lives down for another person is about. But in case you're too dull-headed, you've got all these other pictures, living laboratories all around you. You know, this one big IMAX, you know, marriage, 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 marriage. Where it's just going on all around you. Now, not everyone is married. But that doesn't mean that marriage isn't important because it is a picture of Christ and the church. And God intends our singles to be used in other ways. And and this is not to Paul's not denigrating singles here, but he's calling on us to see that for those of us who are married, which is generally speaking, 
what most people experience. This is about Christ and the church. It's not just about you and and your plans for your spouse and you, but it's much, much bigger. But he's given all these encouragements, all these pictures of grace all around you. And so as we endeavor to live for Christ in our own marriage, we are building up the church because we are exalting Christ because marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And to say that the church has no interest in in our marriages is to misunderstand what marriage is all about. Because the church is all about Christ and all about the gospel, all about the word cleansing you and pointing you to the Savior. And he gives us these little diagrams to help us better understand it. But the diagrams are lived out by sinners, every one of us. There's no perfect diagram but that doesn't mean we throw away the picture it means we look to Christ for his grace asking for his cleansing in in our hearts so that we might better show forth the reality of faith and trust in a savior the reality of the love that brought about our redemption It's an opportunity to show the world what God's love is all about. They may never open a Bible, your neighbors, but they're going to see how you treat one another, especially in the summer when the windows are open. As you walk to your car, as you work in your yard as you engage with one another in the house, not realizing that others can hear your conversation, you have an opportunity to show forth Christ and his love, amazing love for the church. And there's enough fault on both sides that we all need God's grace to do that better. But you see, what it means for us to be the church is to let the church be revealed in our marriages. Let Christ be revealed in our marriages. It's very practical. And that's why at the end, Paul says, I am talking about Christ in the church. We cannot just look at church as as my own little construct for my own personal pleasure with our own rules. No, this is about Christ in the church. That's the great mystery. That Christ would would somehow, in our marriages, choose to reveal himself. Through you. That's a mystery. But he does it. Not because of our perfection, but because of his grace. But he wants to remind us, yes, your marriage is about Christ. But you also need to do your part. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
That word respect there is the same word in verse 21 as reverence. It's actually the word fear. Wives should not fear their husband in any sort of harmful way. The range of the word fear meaning encompasses reverence. For those of you that are husbands, let me ask you, are you making it easy for your wife to reverence you? Or are your words and actions making it hard for her to reverence you? And wives, are are you making it easy for your husband to love you, to lay down his life for you again and again? Or are you making it hard? Now, whether or not you're making it hard gives no excuse to the other party because this is all about our responsibilities. But you see, as we grow in grace together, it's a lot easier for a wife to reverence a man that she knows has been laying down his life for her to make her life beautiful. And it's a lot easier for a man to lay down his life for a wife that he knows respects her, regardless of what the world thinks of him. Jesus comes to sinners and he offers grace. And we in our marriages have the opportunity to show that grace to the world in a very small microcosm of Christ's love for the world. May he do that in us. And may lives be changed because of us. Because of what God is doing in us and through us by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we, we fall short, woefully short. Oh, I can be so selfish. Indeed, Lord, I distinctly remember just a short time after being married to Nancy when I just had not ever realized how selfish I was. And I still can be selfish. We all can be selfish. Thinking about our rights rather than our opportunities to show forth Christ. Our opportunities to show that he's worthy of respect. Our opportunities to demonstrate that Christ loved us fully and completely, even when we were still sinners, even when we were enemies. Oh, Lord, may our spouses not be our enemies. May they be our friends. And may it be a growing joy to demonstrate your grace. But even when it may be difficult, we ask for your help. Because it's not just about our personal happiness. It's about your mercy and your love and your grace and your glory. Lord, if you're going to present your church as glorious, that means the marriages that are within the church 
need to more and more reflect that glory. Help us to think about that. And help us to live that. Help us to encourage one another as we struggle with our own sin, as we encourage one another with grace and forgiveness. May your love more and more be magnified in our community and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning.